0: Welcome back to Imago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Imago Day because equality and dignity of BIPOC and LGBTQ lives matter. This week's spiritual care provider, myself and co host Kendra Arsenal. Hi, everyone. um, (laughs) Are here today. In this episode, we are continuing our redefined series, Creating Bigger Boxes for a Bigger God. Today, we're tackling the pinnacle of faith and what it all relies on, and that is the belief in God, or the belief that there is something bigger out
1: there. Happy National Hispanic Heritage Month, everyone. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad to have this introduction by spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle. (laughs) There is so much to learn from indigenous cultures of the past and present, and ways that we can validate a spirituality that is native to ourselves. So I look forward to continuing in that celebration today.
0: Yeah, I'm actually really excited about our conversation because I think there's some overlap between the nature of my work every day and the content of this conversation, both internally, my internal process, and then obviously the external work that's done more collectively or collaboratively with the patient.
1: Our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. This month is Kinship Awareness Month. So if you're not already a member of Kinship, please make sure to join their newsletter, sign up and become a member today. Whether you are pre, post or current Christian, we want your fellowship. And so there is a lot to be learned in community with one another. So If you haven't already, please sign up for the newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings, and let's just get into it. All right, so today's episode is really inspired by the fact that I think there has been a lot of trauma in the LGBTQ community, and there are people who are at different stages in their journey of belief in God in general. There have been people on this show who are ex Adventist or post-Adventism, where they have kind of evolved in a way that they're no longer part of the community and may no longer be subscribing to the theological belief of God in the way that the church has created it, but that they're grappling with their own journey of spirituality and finding meaning and finding groundedness and finding community. And so I wanted to talk a little bit today about really kind of addressing my own journey and shifts and beliefs and how I'm relating to God differently in this part of my life, but also hoping that as a chaplain, you can help us kind of navigate the ways that we might journey with one another as we're on different sides of that spiritual journey of belief in God. So you have a really endearing story that I have enjoyed listening to, and it is about a conversation you had during the end of life with a patient. And I think that's a time where these critical questions of, is there a God and existential issues come to light? There are different ways to approach where people are coming from and what they find sacred and the ways that they're journeying through their own understandings of the sacred and their relationship with something bigger. So if you could, maybe you can start us off with that story. Yeah, I'd love to. So I was...
0: Called to meet with a woman who had been battling cancer for a while, but ultimately she was on her deathbed. There was no more after this that could be done, and she was very aware of that. And it was interesting because she had this Christian background, but here she was talking about reincarnation and how she feared that her soul might actually come back and in a different form. We all have
1: our theories, but none of us have an assurity of what comes after life. And she was afraid that she might be reincarnated. As a cat. As a cat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so I think it was a really interesting conversation. And in her rational mind, she was like, I know this is, probably a stupid fear that I have, but but what if? What if I come back as a cat? Yeah. And I think by that point in the conversation I had been so impressed with everything that she had been through and how much compassion was available to her for the people who cared for her how much resilience she had demonstrated throughout her whole health journey how she spoke about her illness, how she spoke about death, and all I did was reflect that to her. It's like, I'm not sure if you'll come back as a cat or if you'll come back at all, if you will go to heaven or go to a resting place. I think you've weighed all of those options, and what's really resonating with you is a fear that you might return into a reality that you don't see as very fortunate. But I've also heard you in this conversation talk about how beautiful life has been to you and how beautiful these relationships, including the friendship that she had next to her, have been to her. And I think that if you're the kind of person that could survive and thrive even through your cancer and through all of your hardships, that I think I even said it almost jokingly. I said, how hard is a cat's life? in comparison to what you've been through. And she smiled and she giggled at that. And then we actually talked about no matter how she comes back, if it's a tree or a cat or a human being, that her spirit and her character will travel with her and that her resilience that she's shown in this lifetime with the hardships that I think are unimaginable to people already,
1: that she could survive being a cat. And I love that approach. I think there are some people who might say, this is our moment to introduce you to the one true God and and this is my last ditch effort to bring you into the kingdom. And I know that in my church experience, I've heard those stories. I've literally had people sit in the pulpit and tell me that literally they prayed for someone to come out of a coma and they came out of a coma just to hear the gospel. And then they went back into a coma. And so for me, those kind of end of life stories were so framed in the sense of this is the moment to be saved rather than this is the moment to connect with the things that you find meaning in and the things that are yourself and the things that give you hope to face whatever future is ahead of you.
0: I hear that and I think that perhaps my spiritual palate has changed a little bit where even as you say that, all I can really filter in, it almost feels opportunistic or agenda-driven, which is not so much of a co-creative process with the patient or patient-led, that it really feels like there's an agenda behind using this moment of vulnerability or this opportunity to insert theology, which is so in contrast to the work that I do as a spiritual care provider, where the journey is really patient-driven, and I am seeing myself as Somebody who accompanies and provides clarity, uses the expertise to draw out from the patient what is most significant to them, draw out from the patient what is actually happening internally, where I'm learning as the patient kind of unfolds their story or their feelings, rather than this very colonial I'm in this moment now. I'm the protagonist. I know what is best for you. I'm going to use this moment where you might be more suggestible or vulnerable Mm -hmm. or desperate to kind of insert theology. I think it would be more appropriate for a pastor, maybe, a a, a community clergy, yeah. yeah, to have that conversation. It would not be appropriate for somebody in my role. And so sometimes people talk about their experiences through the lens of their feelings, and we meet that with knowledge and theology. And it can sometimes be a little dismissive of what's actually going on. The real opportunity for connection is missed when you get caught up in trying to have a conversation about what to expect rather than to acknowledge, hey, there's a fear that's alive. I see that. I hear what you're saying. What I also know just from having this conversation with you is that you're incredibly resilient. And even if your fear were to actualize, what I see before of me gives me a lot of confidence that you would have the ability to manage that because I cannot imagine somebody managing what you're managing now and you're doing it so well. So I'm inspired. Yeah. Which is a very different conversation. Well, well, it's a contradiction of your own theology that
1: (laughs) you would be reincarnated. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about reincarnation. And I think, so for me, the way that my outlook on the world and on God have been changing is interesting because I spend three and a half years at a seminary and I come out of that seminary not wanting to talk at all about theology. And... What I realize, kind of the space that I'm in now, is I, I feel like I'm leaning more into the God of mystery, and the reason why I say that is because I think sometimes we go down this, this searching for knowledge of who God is, how many follicles of hair are on His head, how 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 picky and can we get about, how's the end time going to play out, what's heaven going to be like, let's even dissect the Trinity in a way that is just so concrete that I think sometimes we don't admit what we actually don't know about God. And I think when we begin to say, well, we know everything there is to know, and this is what I know, it leaves not a lot of room for God to surprise you. Also for the view of God to become bigger than the boxes that we have built. And when I think about building boxes, think about the story of David and how David wanted to build God a temple. And before then, God was traveling in tents. And so I think even the work that we're doing to build bigger boxes, David wanted to build a temple and kind of mined different pieces of gold and jewels and timber to build a bigger box is really what this is about, this whole process of wanting to help give tools for people to create a bigger place for God to stay in their own minds. And when I think about the knowledge, everything that we know, or as Adventists presume to know about God, that all of that knowledge could not translate into a kinder approach towards LGBTQ people, me having experienced that, me having witnessed that happen to other people. It does begin to say, what good is your knowledge if it doesn't have feet and hands? What good, what good is it to know what happens exactly at the end times if you're not learning about how to be a good steward of the earth now, of people now? And I think there have been questions that have risen to the top of my priority rather than thinking, what's going to happen when I die? A part of me is like, I'm not going to figure that out until I get there. There are some doors you don't walk through until you walk through them. But what I do realize is that there are some things that I can know. And for me, it has more to do with the attributes of what I would call God or what I would call good. It requires ethical thinking that I am putting into practice the ways that my participation in relationships, in society and even smaller communities. How am I being intentional about the ways that I show up into those spaces in a way that is considerate of human beings?
0: I just want to comment on how much I appreciate the imagery of building a temple, calling back to that story and using as a a metaphor for what we try to do when we create an image of God in our own minds and we try to honor and make room for God in our lives. Just making a metaphor out of this process of saying, I want to make room for God in my life. I want to build a temple for God to inhabit in my life.
1: And even Solomon says, after building this grand temple, recognizes that the whole world cannot contain you. Yeah,
0: that we can try to make it bigger and bigger and bigger, and it cannot contain God. I think the second thing that I appreciate is we like to think of ourselves very differently than the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' time. But I think you're calling and pointing to an ethical code that makes a belief system accountable to it rather than a moral code that is accountable to a belief system. And it's very different because when you're accountable to a belief system, you have a very rigid way of going about living your life and applying theology into every circumstance. This moral code that's really evident in scripture, and not so much in the fine details, but just how do we avoid harming the world around us? How do we avoid harming ourselves and look to honor God in creating secure relationships with the people around us?
1: It reminds me of what Jesus says in the book of John, and when he is giving the blind man sight, you know, I've come that those who see may become blind, and those who are blind may see. And I think I am really, and I haven't intentionally thought about this verse as one to live by, but intentionally becoming blind to say, yes, I've spent this time studying thousands of hours, I would say at least, over the course of three and a half years, trying to see God. And now I am closing my eyes and I want to walk through life a little more intuitively, a little more using the other senses that I have my ears, my touch, my smell, to heighten these other sensory experiences, faculties, because I think that my eyes are actually blind in the sense that when we've gotten to the place where we've picked a theology apart and we're so sure and certain, I think that's precisely when we lose who God actually is.
0: I can see myself in the person who wants to get it right. And I think that's why it's so important at some point. Point in the creation of this podcast, I know that there's a, there was a real intention to have theological answers. This is the exegetical analysis of this text, and this is how we're justifying it. And the more we did that, not only did we find more answers that proved God was more spacious and kind towards the LGBTQ community, but also how irrelevant those arguments are to one's experience. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way of Scripture. I don't mean that to say that there's no room for theology, that there's no room to have intellectual conversations. I'm just saying that's all it has been. And we have not held the impact of that theology
1: accountable To that belief. We know that there is a limitation to knowledge. I mean, just the same thing, if anybody has ever struggled with any addiction, I think a lot of life habits also fall into the vein of addictions. There are things that don't necessarily change with knowledge. And I think my current space that I'm at, when I think about who is God, I think about a God who is beyond gender. I think that we've often visualize God as an old man with a white beard sitting in a cloud, and is often very masculine. The historicity of Jesus, I'm not going to argue about him being a man, but I will say that Paul makes statements about long hair being a shame for men and that it is a glory for women. There was something a little bit queer about Jesus, that the way that He presented having taken the vow of the Nazarene to grow his hair out or having not married, (laughs) not knowing if he's actually asexual, but that would be a part of the LGBTQIA community. I think there's so much that we could look at the Godhead and see more of a they them, see the, the elements of the feminine. In fact, the word in Hebrew, El Shaddai. It just comes from the term of the breasted one, the mighty breasted one. And Abraham knew God in kind of a feminine way. The first time that that term was used was actually by Abraham. And he knew God because of who God was to him, taking him out of the land of his origins, feeding him and protecting him in the desert all throughout his old age, that the relationship with God was based on not a theology, but who are you practically to me? The things that you're providing. And God showed up in Abraham's life like a mother. And he called him Adonai. We think of it, I don't know what we think of it, the Almighty, but it's actually a picture of a, the breasted one. And so these images of who God is, even throughout the Bible, are not always clear on these gender lines. So, it's To get out of this, God is a man, and, and that's all there is to it. But to now start moving towards, oh, there are these feminine and masculine and sometimes ambiguous parts of who God is, that God in some ways is beyond gender or embodying all of it.
0: And to embrace the mystery, as you were talking about, that sometimes when we are looking to have a greater sense or a greater understanding, it doesn't always stem from curiosity. It sometimes stems from needing permission to hold somebody accountable to a truth that you found. The way we're engaging in this knowledge-seeking is sometimes motivated by a desire to free yourself from being accountable or by a desire to hold somebody accountable. And really, these are issues of control. I and- will
1: I will definitely jump on that. Okay. <laughs> Can I just say, it's so funny that you bring this up because I, I was thinking about talking about this, that I realized kind of a more nefarious version of myself that went down the journey of faith. Sometimes I think when I was in my 20s, early 20s, 21, 22, I had this reawakening and I really wanted to know God. And I thought a lot of it was because my life was very unstable, especially that part of your life from like 20 to 28, You're financially vulnerable. You're going through a lot of stressors. You're away from family. You're creating a new identity. There are so many reasons to have a crisis (laughs) during this time of your life. And I thought, well, I think I just want stability. And, And God was something to give me that. But I realized that in some ways, I was also in a period of my life where I was going through a bad breakup. And I think that what I wanted was for someone to not be able to leave me. I think my abandonment issues came up. And what system of accountability is there more than the church who says, you get married and it's once for all and that's it. And I think I can see that part of myself that was just afraid to be abandoned and that wanted to be a part of a system that could force somebody (laughs) to be with me forever rather than say, This loss is a part of my learning experience. People have free will. Even if I were to get married, people can run away at any point, or we can just become emotionally distant. That keeping somebody by force is never a proper motivator. But I think that somewhere back there I was looking for a world where that it would keep somebody accountable to me. And so I can definitely see that that's also sometimes a a reason why these structures appeal to us. They're going to force justice. They're going to force people to act a certain way, a way that we think that we were victimized and now deserve to be treated.
0: Yeah, and you made a fair comparison uh, just earlier in terms of when we intellectualize issues, we can only get so far. When you invite more than just a theological perspective, when you invite science, when you invite psychosocial knowledge you go through a journey where the pieces shift a little bit to make room for new knowledge. And I think I was I was only inserting myself with theological knowledge. It was very limited. Not only was it purely theological, but it was related to one religion only. And so my view of God was very influenced by that lens. But what happened after that is I started to become familiar with more psychosocial terms. So what is transference? Or how is my attachment style influencing my perception of God? Not only do I have this information, but how is collective trauma influencing my perception of God? How is my own trauma influencing my perception of God? Why is it that this person can read God in this text as a very loving and kind father? And I experienced that same text as a very revengeful, very angry father. I think when I started to realize that I was projecting onto God all of the things that I was taught I should be ashamed of— i began to read scripture differently i was able to differentiate myself i was able to differentiate my parental figure i only knew to experience god in the masculine form it was really refreshing to find a maternal figure in god i remember asking myself if i had a daughter how would i want her to be treated and then imagining That whatever I would say to this daughter is what God, in the most feminine way, in the most motherly way, would offer me. And in exploring that, I found a new God. I found a new relationship. I was never taught to hear God in that maternal instinct kind of way. But the reality is that you cannot untangle your experience from your perception. And you cannot remove your bias from your theology. So unless you start to become hyper aware of how your upbringing, your country, your politics, your advantage or disadvantage in life, your traumas, your illnesses have played a role in your perception of reality, then you really are walking in blind, thinking you understand God, but you don't even understand yourself. How could anybody come to any conclusions about others when they don't even know
1: what is working, what systems are working within them? For me, I'm really wanting to move into my ethical brain, but also into my intuitive brain. And I think there is something to be known about God when I have just now considered myself blind. So questions about theology, questions about That that don't pertain to the person of who God is, but are what happens when we die, is there a hell, what's heaven, the nature of the Trinity, even people, I mean, there are entire groups that have segmented because they believe that Jesus should be called Jesus, or Yeshua, or Yahweh, or Jehovah. People have fractioned based off of this is who this person is, and this is how they need to be called, and we are centering our entire religion based off of this one piece of information. And so rather than going down the road of knowing, I'm trying to go down the road of mystery and revelation. And one thing I will say is, as I was going to seminary, I was driving cross country. and I remember I just had the most meaningful meditations about what I was observing, my thoughts about God, and I remember sharing that in one of my first classes in seminary and I can tell you I got looks. I was a crazy hippy dippy person and I and I learned not to talk like this anymore. I was driving across country and from California to Michigan there is a lot of change of landscapes. You go through Arizona and the desert and Utah and there are grand cliffs and sometimes there's red stone and orange stone and just seeing the most wonderful desert sunsets. And I would look over the landscape and sometimes it would be very dry. And I would think about how the Bible says, I know every grain of sand and I know everything. And I think it would take me a lifetime to, it would take me several lifetimes to count every piece of sand that there is on this planet. And yet somehow God knows the number. And in this moment, God is familiar with the animals in the desert and which ones are thirsty and which ones are okay, which ones to feed, which ones are dying, which ones are being born. And there is this rich life and experience that God is having in this moment to be integrated in this world where all these things are happening. There are moments of sadness and moments of joy. And that I started thinking about people as a landscape that... That there is an ability for God to relate to those who are in grief and also to rejoice with those who are celebrating. And to think all of that complexity happening at once, it blew my mind to think, how could we know? How can we begin to figure out, God, if we can't even begin to know the ends of our own earth? How can we begin to figure out just, I mean, if I had that experience, if I had the experience of 8 billion people on planet earth including the animals and having that incredible connection with everything that is living, I would have the most wise thoughts that could ever be obtained. I think I'm wise sometimes because I observed a couple of things and I said, hmm, look at that. But there is a level and depth of humanity that is happening. If I do believe that this person is having this experience, how can I begin to even enter into that? It's so vast to me. And I entered into the seminary, and the response was, that's hippy-dippy BS, or that's, that's weird to think that way. We need to go down the channel of what we know God. This is a trinity, and this is a salvation, and this is justification. This is what yeah, happens when you die. Yeah.
0: That we have to have answers, and that we have to have great truths and beliefs around who God is. That we can't just feel the reverence. and and experience a sense of awe and reverence for the mystery that contains it all. I am so overwhelmed even just picturing what you described. And it's just me entering into my imagination. I think you in that moment really appreciating how grand, how uncontainable God is, and, and just having the most respect for a kind of intelligence that could
1: hold all of that and and remain consistent and if we were to have that type of look that god is integrated and in, as far as the eyes can see across the desert why wouldn't we be concerned about global warming why wouldn't we be concerned about bettering the life of the animals on this planet not just the people or why not at the very least appreciate the complexity
0: of every person's journey with the same kind of compassion and spaciousness that the mystery is receiving them with and meeting them with. And God does not run out of patience, being so aware of all of the evil that we're aware of, and, and yet
1: having this grace and the this continuity. Yes. Yeah. And, and I could see that being a great motivator to do good. I think there's a great incentive. If I were to believe God as this divine spirit, having this multiplicity of experiences of, of dryness and of joy, of hardship and of glee, why wouldn't I want to be a part of the reparation of that? I think that's a that's a grander way of approaching ethics. It's a grander way that we could tackle the problem. But I don't think tackling the problem through knowledge is going to get us very far. I think tackling it through practice And through learning what it is to be a kind human being, learning what is ethical, finding ways to be a reparative force in the world. When I'm triggered, because maybe somebody comes at me aggressively, I'm thinking in my fight or flight brain. I'm not thinking about, I want to get to heaven in this moment. And so I'm going to be kind. (laughs) I'm thinking trigger, and I might act in a way that I know better than to act. So it's not about knowing. It really is about training myself in those moments where I am triggered or I am caught off guard. Those are moments for me to grow. Those are moments for me to reassess. And it doesn't necessarily happen because I know what to do. It's a part of a journey of healing, of understanding my own safety and understanding my resources and understanding the different ways to approach. And that takes practice. It doesn't come through a theory. You're doing something right now in your family systems class where I think there is religious trauma when it comes to church and a person's association with God based on the lens of that community or or that family. And what you're learning is when there is a roadblock, when that channel is no longer working, that there are different systems that you can access. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I think it's really important that that there are different channels opened up and that are validated as being meaningful and okay to have this relationship with an understanding of something bigger than you, even if that something bigger is just your own accountability to a collective conscious, your own willingness to be accountable to a greater society and to listen to people. That's also valid. I think that just because of Human nature or whatever
0: it is, condition, call it whatever, there are going to be parties in a system that are going to arrive at an impasse at some point or another. If we can come to a level of acceptance that this happens, then we can have a more realistic approach to those issues than to say, no, 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 this can't happen. That's not allowed to happen. We're not allowed to have these roadblocks and impasses between parties. Everybody is kumbaya. We should all get along. We all need to abide by these rules. And I think in families, it's really interesting when you have a teenager, let's say, and a parent, well, technically the parent has more power and can superimpose a rule and still not get buy-in from the teenager. In fact, the teenager could wait it out and say, I'm going to create my own system in a while, and I won't be under this kind of authority anymore, and I'll have a say over my own life. And I think when families get to an impasse, that is an alternative, is we could all go our separate ways. But if if all parties are interested in remaining in relationships, If there's a desire to feel connected and to make the home hospitable to everybody, when there is an impasse, the use of power will only get you obedience. It will not get you relationship. It will not get you buy-in. It will not get you agreement. And so I think helping parents access different
1: pastors,
0: pastors, Mm -hmm. churches, access different selves, They can also access different coping. I'm actually remembering this dad who wanted their child, who's a teenager, to become baptized. But their child was like, no, I don't believe in that. And it's my decision. And I'm not going to get baptized. And the dad, who still called them their daughter, Because his child was non-gender conforming and preferred they, them pronouns. But he was still in this, you're my little daughter. I want you to go to heaven. You need to get baptized. And that's just a rule. We're here in therapy because I need a therapist to convince you (laughs) to get baptized. And the child is like, no, that's my personal decision. And I will not do that. So we're at an impasse here. And... When you enter the picture, you're, you're supposed to remain neutral. You're not going to say, Dad, you're in the right, or, Child, you're in the right. It's, there's a real desire for connection here. And at this level, there's an impasse, and we can disagree about things. Dad, it sounds like you really want your child to be going to heaven, and you want them to have a relationship with God. And you value baptism and you reflect that back. And dad, in this case, said something to the effect of, yeah, we wanted to create the opportunity for them to have a choice to have God. And we instilled these values and we taught him about Jesus Christ because we wanted them to choose and say, well, just based off of that, it sounds like you want this to be a personal decision. Seeing dad shift from, I need to protect you. You need to do this from your own good to, I was called to create this opportunity for a choice that only you can make, created a shift between them too, And seeing how maybe being supportive of the process and really valuing their child's autonomy allowed for them to connect in that moment. So dad did not get what he wanted. The outcome was to convince their child to get baptized But he discovered that he valued their child's decision to choose Christ in a meaningful way more than he valued the practice of it anyways. And so how could in their relationship he introduce a version of God that their child would be more interested in rather than force a version of God onto them? I think the main point is that sometimes we become guardians and arbiters of God's truth as a way to help God or help us or help people. And we forget that the very point of it all is to protect an order of love rather than a specific person or player.
1: Sometimes the wounds we receive in communal spaces are so big and so traumatic that we need alternative routes for connecting with God. Picking up the Bible and attending exclusive gatherings like non-affirming churches can sometimes be more triggering for those in the LGBTQ community because of the rejection they have experienced at the hand of religion. Finding alternative routes to God Spirituality and a personal derivation of meaning and community might mean you blaze a trail off the beaten path. Ultimately, our goal is to give each other space to encounter the divine at our own pace. Sometimes that might look like deriving meaning from cosmic coincidences or feeling connected to something bigger than ourselves while driving through the vast landscapes of an Arizona desert. Other times, it's simply gathering gems meaningful pieces of insight that we take as treasure and can pass along to a new generation, building a bigger temple for God to dwell in. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Imago Gay as we explore our redefined series, Bigger Boxes for a Bigger God. I hope you enjoyed this exploration of finding ways to relate to God when our current avenues are impacted by trauma. Amago gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful god in addition to curious conversations i am so grateful for all of you who have reached out and been sharing your personal stories and journeys of faith if you're enjoying the content please be sure to rate this podcast on spotify or apple podcast and share this episode with a friend as a reminder this month is Kinship Awareness Month. So please sign up and become a member if you are not already. You can do so at sdakinship.org or you can follow them at SDA Kinship on Instagram. If you'd like to follow our co-host today, spiritual care provider Roxanne Valle, you can do so on Instagram at Roxanne Marie. And if you'd like to reach me, you can write to me at Kendra Arsena with an X on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow our sponsors for today, Spectrum Magazine at spectrummagazine.org and SDA Kinship International. And be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.